Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 8, Caractacus, the Homewrecker. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Veronica, Andy, and Joachim for joining up already. This episode will cover the years 42 to 54 CE. The main characters will be Caractacus, leader of the British resistance and exiled king of the Catavolani, Aulus Plautius, the general who took Britannia for Emperor Claudius, Publius Astorius Scapula, a Roman governor of Britannia, Cardamandua, the queen of the Brigantes, and Venutius, the king of the Brigantes. All right, let's get to it. Have you ever had a really awful breakup or seen a really terrible breakup? We're talking about shouting, screaming, thrown objects, you name it. For my part, I once had dried roses hurled at me from a third-story window like javelins as I thought, oh dear God, I hope no one I know sees this. True story. Anyway, think about the worst one you've ever seen. Do you have it in mind? Okay, did it involve civil war? Well, that it wasn't as bad as the divorce that was caused by Caractacus's rebellion against Rome. Yep, civil war. These weren't the type of people to respond to a breakup by sitting down and writing sad poems in their journal. Oh no. But before we get to all the heartache and fighting, we need to lay down a foundation and show what caused it. And I think the best way to start that discussion is with a question from David from Pasadena. Not that David caused the divorce, at least as far as I know. And his question is this. Why did some Brit tribes surrender so quickly? And what happened to them after they surrendered? That's a great question. And the short answer is that Rome spent centuries cultivating a reputation for being ruthless to her enemies and kind to those who surrendered to her will. So, for example, if you were a member of one of the weak Conti tribes in modern-day Kent, you could either roll the dice and hope that you didn't get butchered wholesale, or you could surrender and hope that the Romans would treat you well. And the thing is that if you did surrender, chances are that the Romans would treat you quite well. And that makes sense because if they rewarded compliant tribes, it would lead other tribes to follow suit. The flip side of it, however, is that Rome also had every reason to be exceedingly harsh on the tribes who refused to surrender, since that also would encourage other tribes to lay down their arms. So the screws really were being turned on the Britons at this point in history. And of course, it wasn't simply a choice between clemency and death. The truth of it is that Roman domination had its downsides. But the biggest among them, which was the loss of the right to rule independently, would really only be felt by the ruling classes. And while that was a problem, it really wasn't all that bad for the ruling classes when you take into account that their submission would also mean an increase in trade with Rome, which would bring with it an increase of availability of goods from the mainland, such as wine and, of course, loans. So we're looking at a bit of a carrot-and-stick situation. But the interesting thing here are the loans. See, it was a simple and devastatingly effective weapon. Basically, the way it worked was this. You gave the people a taste of fine goods, and you made them available at prices that was really outside of their ability to pay. 
and then you provided them loans so they could buy the goods and then just paid off over time at, of course, really high interest rates. Thus, they ended up paying many times more than the item was worth, and they never really got out of debt. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's a pretty old game. So that's kind of what the ruling classes were dealing with. Now, as for the common Briton, the people who were essentially the serf class, well, they wouldn't have seen much of a change following surrender. That isn't to say that there wouldn't be changes later, and we'll definitely talk about the Romanization of Britannia as we progress in the show. But as for the immediate effects, I don't think the average farming Briton would have noticed much of a difference between British and Roman rule. After all, this really wasn't a time when the concept of individual freedom was known. So here's what I think the serfs of the surrendering tribes would have noticed. Of course, there would be an increased presence of the Roman military, as well as the Roman tax collectors. And the reason the Roman military would be around more often is because they'd occasionally be there to defend the territory from other not-so-compliant tribes. And then the tax collectors would come in, because the Britons would then be required to pay for the service of the military who were there defending the lands. And so taxes would be imposed, and they'd come along and take whatever they needed. And that would end up impacting the average Briton. There would also be new laws regarding the ownership of weapons, and they might have had some weapons confiscated as a result, slowly leading to the tribes being disarmed. And that disarmament would serve to make the tribe even more reliant upon the protection of Rome. And I think the biggest issue for the common Britons would have been religion. As we discussed, the Romans weren't excited about Druidism. And consequently, if you were a Druid, then your worship got much more complicated following subjugation. But by and large, life for the common Britons probably still looked mostly the same. I mean, chances are, you probably still had the same tribal leader, and you were also probably still stuck as a farmer with absolutely no hope of ever bettering yourself. And you still hated your neighboring tribe. Only now you hated them for either being rebels, surrendering too soon, or, you know, trying to copy your tribe by surrendering at the same time. The point is, you still had the same wealthy family with its boot on your neck. And you also had to deal with that same neighboring tribe that you were convinced cavorted naked in the fields with a sheep. So by and large, life for the average Britons really did just kind of go on as normal. So long as you paid your new taxes and followed the new laws, that is. And it seems to me that David's question also hints at another larger issue. Our tendency to assume that this was a period of Rome versus Britannia. Though nothing could be farther from the truth. To start with, the Britons really didn't have any concept of Britannia. There were Iceni, or Brigante, or Ordovices, or Catovolani. See, the thing is, there just wasn't a British nation. There were merely tribes living in territories that they carved out for themselves. And the tribes were not unified. In fact, as I mentioned last week, disunity was a common theme for this early Britannia. And even now, essentially on the island, you still had two main groups— the subjugated, and the rebels. And the rebels lived like gorillas and were constantly on the move. And they were being hunted, or were hunting, the legions of Rome. And that brings us to the leader of the rebels that looms large in our history. Caractacus, the man who survived the fall of Camelodunum, and now he was continuing his fight against Governor Aulus Plautius. 
For four years, Plautius reigned as governor in this new province, and during his tenure, he sent his legions out to terrify the natives into submission. Like the conquest that would follow him throughout the centuries, he employed a scorched-earth policy upon any British natives that showed even an inkling of rebellion. Now, because this period of history is messy, and it threatens to derail the overall narrative with minutia, we're going to focus upon the most famous of the rebel leaders, namely Caractacus. So, King Caractacus no longer held a kingdom. The Romans had taken it from him, and he was forced to flee into the territory of the Silures, in the mountainous region we now know as South Wales. The Silures were quite different from their southeastern neighbors, and that's probably due to the fact that they were not traders. And consequently, while the southern and eastern Britons were already becoming Romanized before the conquest, the Silures were still holding on to the old ways. And so they were probably natural allies for Caractacus. And apparently, they weren't alone in feeling this way. The Ordovices of North Wales also offered their support of Caractacus. Now, why were the Silures and Ordovices so willing to help Caractacus and become a lightning rod for Rome's fury? After all, Britannia was racked with intertribal war. Why didn't they just turn him away since he wasn't from their tribe? And why did they decide to work together? Well, we're forced to make educated guesses since there's no written history from the Brits' perspective, and the Romans being, well, Romans, have destroyed most of our ancient history. But to begin with, despite the fractured nature of the island, Cassivellaunus, as well as Caractacus and Togodominus with their original resistance, have shown us that the Britons were quite capable of putting aside their differences to fight against an external threat when they need to. And the desire to remain independent was probably quite a good motivator. I mean, fancy wine or not, losing your independence is a pretty steep price to pay, you know? Further, the fight against Roman domination probably also provided an opportunity to act on some of the old grudges that were being held between the tribes in the area. So they would be able to work with some tribes while beating up on other tribes that they didn't like. And they could also fight the Romans. Not too shabby of a prospect. So working together wasn't really out of the question, and they definitely had motivations for it. But here's a theory that might not be immediately obvious, but I find it rather compelling. The Isle of Mona, which is also known as Innes Mon, and what we currently know as Anglesey, was a major center of Druidism at this point in time. And the Druidic priests surely must have seen the writing on the wall, and realized that they needed to organize a unified fight against the Romans, or risk losing everything. And in addition to being religious leaders... The Druidic priests were also sort of diplomats, known for even walking into the middle of battles and stopping them. So perhaps it was the Druids who brokered the agreement. And given Rome's animosity towards Druidism, they would have had every reason to try and form a unified resistance against the Roman advance. On top of that, there are also references in ancient Welsh poems that suggest that Cunobelinus, who was Caractacus's father, had family ties with the tribes of Cornwall and Cornwall and Wales had very strong ties at this point in history, as they were both the result of the same Brythonic migration. So perhaps that gave Caractacus an in, as he might have been able to establish some blood ties with the Welsh. But the theory that I most like is that the Druids were brokering peace and trying to save their religion. 
Regardless, though, Caractacus was in a territory that we now know as Wales. And good for him. It's beautiful there. If you haven't been, you should book a trip as soon as you finish this podcast. But finish the podcast first. Priorities. Anyway, so Caractacus was hiding in the mountains of Wales, taking in the sights, enjoying the beautiful countryside, and of course, gathering rebels to his cause. And there must have been plenty, considering that the legions were marching around savaging any Britons that they felt weren't entirely trustworthy. And, you know, behavior like that doesn't exactly win hearts and minds. So my guess is that there must have been people on the fence, and maybe even people with Roman leanings, that were radicalized by what they witnessed. And so it looks like rebel Britons started to make their way towards Caractacus's banner. Meanwhile, in 47, Aulus Plautius's term as governor was up. And so he and his wife returned to Rome. And yeah, he brought his wife with him. Really, dude? You decide to bring your wife to a wild and rebellious land. I mean, I get that four years is a long time, and also that Britain is lovely, but I really doubt that was the kind of vacation that she was after. But anyway, so Plautius and Pomponia, that was his wife, returned to Rome, where he received the last ovation ever given. But before we let Plautius vanish into obscurity, there's one final piece of this story. Pomponia was accused of being a follower of a foreign superstition. And let's think this one through. She was recently in Britannia, and Britannia was Druidic, and Druidism was hated by the Romans. I wonder what foreign superstition she might have been practicing. Anyway, so Plautius was no longer governor, and he was set up to be replaced by Publius Astorius Scapula. But he had not arrived yet in Britannia. Now, we don't have any records of what happened with Caractacus during this period, but we're told that he gathered his army and charged forth, quickly gaining popular support. I like to think that what happened here was that the Druids were on Anglesey, receiving intelligence reports from Roman-occupied Britannia, and heard that Britannia was without a governor. And after consulting with the gods, and determining that now was the time to strike, they sent word to Caractacus, and he sallied forth. But regardless of what started it, the rebellion was now in full swing, and into this mess walked Publius Astorius Scapula. Now, I realize that every week I give you new, strange-sounding names for you to remember. So how about I give you a mnemonic device to help you remember scapula? Scapula, like a spatula, was required to remove shit from hard-to-reach places. And, depending on your perspective, it was also a tool. So, Britannia was in rebellion, and Scapula had his work cut out for him. And the first thing that he did was to order his legions to encamp all along the border that stretched from the Severn to the Avon basically forming a defensive line between the tribes under Caractacus's rule and the Roman-occupied territory. The hope was to stop the guerrilla tactics by denying Caractacus easy targets and quick retreats. Scapula then claimed Camulodunum, which is modern-day Colchester, and established it as a Roman colony where veterans could retire. And actually, over time, this would become the center of Roman power in Britannia. But at that time, it merely just served to enrage the local population. I mean, imagine if some foreign army kicked you and your neighbors out of your homes and then declared that your property, which had been in your family for generations, was now theirs. How happy would you be about that turn of events? And then to cap it all off, he completely disarmed all of the Roman-occupied tribes. 
even the friendly tribes who never fought against Rome. Now, to a warrior culture, a culture that was so tied to fighting that they gleefully charged into battle half-naked, that was a terrible blow. And predictably, this led to a rebellion, even among some of the Roman-occupied tribes, and chief among them were the Iceni. Seriously, sometimes I look at the action taken by occupying forces, like Rome and Britannia, and I really wonder if the strategies were selected by robots or sociopaths. Because while I don't expect the Romans to have empathy for barbarians, after all, if they were going to develop it, they would have by now. But that aside, you would think that they would at least see that by repeatedly kicking the locals in the teeth, that they were going to give the Britons ever more reason to hate them. You know? But apparently, that was just not how Scapula rolled. He apparently was just one of those kinds of people who just couldn't help but poke the bear. Now, here's one of the many points in history where things get a little confusing. As I mentioned, the Iceni were not pleased about being disarmed. And we're not entirely sure who the king of the Iceni was at this point. We know that later on, Prasutagus was the king of the Iceni, but during the rebellion, he either distanced himself from the rebellion, or he wasn't yet on the throne, because I find it incredibly unlikely that the Romans would allow him to hold the throne if he had anything to do with that rebellion. So my guess is that the Iceni rebelled under a different king. Anyway, regardless of who was leading them, the Iceni were on the warpath, thanks to Scapula provoking them. And of course, he was also facing a rebellion on the western side of the island, too. And then things got worse, as the Iceni were joined by Caractacus's tribe, the Catuvalani, and also the Coritani. It really is stunning how quickly Scapula stirred up a hornet's nest, and I wonder if he did it intentionally. Like, perhaps he was supremely confident in the power of his legions, and so he just wanted to find out which tribes harbored any rebellious tendencies. And if that was the case, it might have been a smart move. Because despite the size of the British resistance in the east, and Scapula's unfamiliarity with the land, the Iceni rebellion was defeated after a short battle at one of the Iceni hill forts. So that really didn't last too long. And once again, Caractacus and his Welsh allies stood alone. And I think that Prasutagus, following the defeat of the rebellion, was probably installed as king of the Iceni at this point. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about this guy? Well, he has a significant claim to fame. No, not because he was a king, but rather because he was the husband of a woman that we know as Boudicca. But that story won't truly begin for another 13 years. Anyway, let's get back to the main focus of the story. So, things weren't done for Scapula. Shortly after the Iceni rebellion ended, the Roman client kingdom of Brigantia devolved into civil war in 48 CE. The thing is that the Brigantes were a tough, bellicose, and extremely numerous people. But they weren't a unified people. Their territory centered on Yorkshire, and due to the rocky nature of the land, there just wasn't a unified Brigantia, but rather something more along the lines of a loose confederation of villages under a single ruler. And while Queen Cartamandua had decided to submit to Rome, not everyone agreed, especially given Scapula's treatment of even the surrendering Britons. And we're told that a civil war broke out, and that unrest was significant enough that Scapula had to pause his pursuit of Caractacus and his Welsh allies and march north to put down the rebellion. And once he was done, he put Cartamandua back on the throne. Finally, his flank was secure, 
and Scapula could at last focus upon the Western Rebellion. And his focus was a terrifying thing. So as soon as things in the North and the East calmed down, Scapula publicly vowed to exterminate the Silures to the last man. Charming. And of course, his charms had an effect upon the native Britons. Caractacus was gaining ever more supporters, and there was a very real worry that, given their recent civil war over the issue of Rome, he might manage to persuade the Brigantes to join his cause. And certainly, Scapula's ruthless behavior and the fact that he made Plautius seem downright reasonable in comparison was probably helping Caractacus's recruiting efforts. Now, thankfully, the Silurians had heard about Scapula's plan for genocide. And they also knew that their lands could be easily invaded by the Romans, should they decide to make good on their threat. So the Silures abandoned their homes, and wisely moved their people into the land of the Ordovices, to the north. Again, this level of cooperation and shared defense, not to mention the shared risk given Scapula's plans to wipe them out, makes me think that this went beyond simple intertribal diplomacy, and that the Druids might have had something to do with organizing this. But the fact cannot be denied that the rebellion was being dealt a heavy blow. For three years, Caractacus had engaged in a guerrilla war. And for his trouble, the rebellion in the east was lost. The civil war in the north had failed. And his allies to the southwest had been forced to evacuate their homes. Things could not continue along this path. They were just losing too much ground and it seemed like a decisive conflict with Scapula was inevitable. And I'm torn on this, honestly. On the one hand, I advocated guerrilla tactics in prior conflicts, and lambasted British leaders from engaging Rome in a straight-up fight. And with good reason, it never seemed to end well. But the thing is, Caractacus was in a tight spot. Scapula was brutal, and he was attacking the people, not just the warriors. And so his hit-and-run tactics really weren't sapping the Romans. Rather, they seemed to just be bringing ever more suffering down upon the Britons. His options were few. So Caractacus chose his battleground, a hill fort protected by a river, possibly at Flanimenic. And there he arranged his forces, armed with swords, spears, and stones. And they waited for Scapula and his legions. Eventually, they heard the rhythmic bass sounds of marching men. And soon after that, they could hear the higher-pitched clatter of their armor as the legions approached the river that separated the two forces. I wonder what the Britons behind their walls thought as these human tanks marched towards them and lined up along the river. Conversely, were the legions still spooked by the sight of the British army? These people who were painted in woad and ready for war? Were they used to this sight? Or did it still give them the heebie-jeebies? And if that didn't bother them, what about the ghost fence? Some of the British tribes were headhunters. And one of the things that Caractacus might have deployed to secure his victory was a ghost fence. Which was basically a line of impaled human heads that had been taken in battle. Now, whether or not something like that would really secure mystical assistance is one thing. But seeing something like that would, at the very least be disturbing. But even if there was a ghost fence, it looks like Scapula was taking everything in stride. And after surveying the situation, he ordered the legions to wade into the river and assault Caractacus's hill fort. 
Caractacus, who was with his wife and children, ordered his men to attack. A steady stream of missiles rained down upon the heads of the Romans. But quickly, silently, the legions reorganized into their testudo formations. And then they continued their slow march towards the walls, now much better protected from Caractacus's hailstorm. Every now and then, a man would fall under the onslaught, but he would simply be replaced by the soldier behind him. Their advance never stopped, and it seemed like there was an inexhaustible supply of these Romans. The Britons must have been drenched in sweat by now, their hands raw and their shoulders straining from the sheer number of stones that they had been hurling at the invaders. But still they advanced, and now they were at the walls. Moments later, they were silently swarming over the battlements. The battle cries of the Britons must have turned to panicked screams at this point. The Romans were armored, and they had the best weaponry available, while Caractacus and his rebels were not so lucky. Many of them were unarmored, and utilized whatever weapons they could get their hands on. And so the pitched battle soon turned into a hysterical retreat. Now I might have some listeners saying, wait a minute, Jamie, you're taking some pretty big liberties with this story. How do we know it was hysterical? That's a pretty strong word. Well, my imaginary detractors, here's my reasoning. Caractacus was among the individuals to escape from the fort during the ensuing chaos. But many of his companions were not so lucky. And among those who were left behind to suffer at the hands of Scapula were his wife and children. If he wasn't fleeing for his life in absolute terror, how could he have left his wife and children behind? Unless he was just an awful person, the only explanation for that sort of abandonment is that his survival instincts kicked in and he was basically on autopilot without any higher brain function going on. And I prefer to think of Cracticus as being a generally good guy rather than a deadbeat who left his family to the tender mercies of Rome. And so he ran. He ran to the only place left to go, to the territory of the Brigantes. Sure, they were a client kingdom, but with their recent civil war, it was clear that not everyone loved the idea of siding with Rome. It seems like at least some of the people wanted independence, and Caractacus could offer them a chance at obtaining it. And if they were to join the rebellion, he might have a chance of pushing the Romans back to Gaul. The might of Brigantia, the sheer weight of their numbers, could change the tides of war. And the Iceni were still outraged following their recent rebellion. So if things started to turn, they might join in. And while the Catovolani were subjugated, they might also join in an island-wide fight that was led by their king. And of course, almost all of Wales had already united under the banner of Caractacus. So the Brigante could really change everything for the rebellion. And as long as there was a chance that they would join, Caractacus would have to try. So, dodging Roman legions and allied tribes, Caractacus made his way north. And sometime between 51 and 52 CE, he finally arrived at the court of Cardamandua, the queen of the Brigantes. We don't have any first-hand accounts of what happened next, but I imagine that his arrival brought a mix of scornful looks and heroic cheers. Exhausted, humbled, and desperately in need, he threw himself at Cardamandua's mercy, and she clapped him in irons and handed him over to Scapula. Now why would she do something like that? 
That was certainly something that her husband, King Venutius, was asking. And it's probably what you're asking too. Well, once again, we lack a clear historical record, so we're forced to make guesses. And here's mine. First, as we discussed, Brigantia was a client kingdom. That meant that the Brigantes had a lot of extra goodies. Cartamandoa could hold her throne, and her kingdom wasn't subject to any direct military rule by the Romans so long as they behaved and paid their taxes. But if she joined the rebellion, there was a serious risk that she could lose everything. And second, there probably was some amount of payback involved in this. I mean, Cartamandua held her throne thanks to the intervention of Scapula, so she might have been throwing him a bone in thanks. But I think the main reason was probably power. Britannia was not a unified island. It was a motley collection of warring tribes who held little fondness for each other. So if you're the queen of a large tribe in the north, and you see a rival tribal leader who's managed to unite almost the entirety of the tribes of Wales into a single cause, you might start to have concerns. If this rebellion was successful, what would stop Caractacus from declaring himself the king of Britannia? It wasn't as if the Catavolani and Caractacus in particular had shown restraint in the face of potential conquests. So, Cartamandua was in a tough position. Do you fight a war, risking your throne, your lands, and your life in order to regain the freedom of your nation, but run the risk of being annexed once the fighting is over? Or do you curry favor with your overlord by ending the rebellion and hope to maintain the status quo? For the king of the Brigantes, Venutius, the decision was obvious. Rebellion. But the Brigantes were not led by their king. They were led by their queen. And Cartamandua disagreed. I'll tell you this much. I would not have wanted to be anywhere near that couple when Caractacus was led away by the Romans. An apology and a card would not be able to fix this one. And it seems like this was the final straw for King Venutius. And so he and Cartamandua started to fight amongst each other, trying to gain the upper hand, with Venutius trying to find a way to dethrone his wife, and Cartamandua trying to relegate her husband to a subservient role. But for the most part, despite some of the population being quite angry about the treatment of Caractacus, the conflict at this point was primarily a quarrel between the nobles over who held the throne. Things between them had finally come to a head. Though as we get more into their lives, I think it's going to become clear that things really weren't going well long before Caractacus showed up. And frankly, they were probably just looking for a reason to pack it in. And that is something we'll discuss soon. But for now, let's finish our talk about Caractacus. So thanks to the Brigante betrayal, proud Caractacus was handed over to his enemy, Publius Astorius Scapula. And shortly thereafter, he was transported to Rome to face the judgment of Emperor Claudius. After what was undoubtedly a very difficult trip, Caractacus arrived in Rome in chains. And one imagines that he must have been awed by the sight of it, and probably a bit puzzled. Why would people that lived in a place such as this be concerned with conquering a stormy island that was sparsely populated with thatch-roofed cottages? But there he was, and with him were his wife and family. And before you say, aww, sweet, just keep in mind that it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility that the emperor would butcher his entire bloodline right in front of him and then kill Caractacus, 
just to show the crowds how powerful he was. And that reality was not lost upon Caractacus. So he steeled himself, stood up tall and proud, and addressed the emperor. Quote, Had my rank and ancestry been matched by my good luck, then I would have come to this city as your friend instead of your captive. My current fortune is as degrading to me as it is glorious to you. I had horses and men, arms and riches. Small wonder that I was reluctant to give them up. Just as you Romans want to rule over the whole world, does that mean that the whole world has to accept slavery? If I had been immediately punished as a prisoner, neither my disgrace nor your triumph would have become famous. My punishment would now be followed by oblivion. But if you save me, then I will be an enduring memory of your clemency. End quote. Tacitus, Annals, 1237. Do you see what he did there? He addressed the emperor as an equal, and then warned against the hubris that led to his own downfall, and gave an explanation for his rebellion, which was basically, what would you have done in my situation? And then he complimented him on his victory, and most importantly, he pointed out that he was worth more to the emperor alive than dead. And that was something that had to have rung true. After all, they did go to the trouble of bringing him back to Rome alive. Caractacus really was a brilliant strategist and politician. And so, the emperor granted Caractacus his life. And from this point on, he vanishes into obscurity. However, I like to think that he lived a long life, and he heard rumors of what occurred in his homeland. For example, maybe Caractacus smiled when he heard that Scapula was dead. In fact, he died shortly after that whole business with the Brigante. Presumably, the stress of doggedly pursuing Caractacus left him with nothing else in the tank, and he just wasted away. Or perhaps it was the disappointment over the fact that his victory over Caractacus didn't translate into a victory over Britannia. The rebellion continued. And actually, it's possible that Caractacus might have even gotten word that the Silures continued the rebellion, and before Scapula's replacement could arrive, they managed to defeat a legion. This was one of Rome's greatest defeats in Britannia, and it was at the hands of a group of wiry proto-Welshmen. Am I smiling as I tell you this? Why yes, I am. And I hope that Caractacus lived long enough to ruefully smile as well. Anyway, back to our story. So in 52, Aulus Didius arrived in Britannia and replaced Scapula as governor. And much like his predecessor, he found a country in rebellion, and also one that had recently defeated a legion. How unlucky would you have to be to get a post into this country? I mean, it's wet, wild, and rebellious. Granted, the British are among the most attractive people in the world, so it wasn't all bad, but I mean, come on. When your predecessor died at his post from exhaustion, and you had natives able to defeat a legion, and even the tribes who submitted to Rome would sometimes rebel, you really have to start questioning whether or not your career was going in the right direction, you know? But it does look like Didius learned from Scapula's example. Direct engagements and threat of genocide only served to enrage the natives and led to the loss of one of Rome's legions at the hands of the very people that they were seeking to exterminate. So a new plan was needed, and Didius thought that containment was the best way to go. So he fortified the Roman-occupied territories in Lower Britannia 
and left Wales and Northern Britannia alone. Now, that didn't mean the rebellion stopped, of course. The people weren't going to forget Roman brutality simply because a newer, kinder, more cuddly governor showed up. And Wales was still a hotbed of insurrection. But Didius was wise to hunker down. Things weren't exactly stable in the surrounding areas, nor were they stable back home in Rome. In 54 CE, Emperor Claudius died. There were rumors that he was poisoned by his wife, who had murdered at least one of her prior husbands and possibly two. So with Claudius, it looks like she might have completed the trifecta. But whatever the case, Claudius's sad life came to an equally sad end. And it really is a tragic story. It was also tragic for Rome, because Claudius's death led to the crowning of his stepson, Nero. And that's going to be fun. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 